This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I've returned from Alaska, the last frontier, and really had a great time across the nine days I was traveling there to film a couple batches of Conservation Nation that we'll be bringing to you later this fall and early next year at the latest. We covered resource development in the vein of the Alaska model, and I got to have a lot of fun too in the process. It wasn't grueling film conditions. It's a lot of fun whenever we go to the field and film Conservation Nation episodes. So if you're wondering why I was in Alaska, that is it. But for purposes of today's episode, I have a special interview with my new friend, Patrick Brenner of the Southwest Public Policy Institute. And it's a research institute built to explore and build on sound data-driven policies regarding education, crime economics, and much many other issues that will encourage positive change in the American Southwest. The Southwest, as you all know, has a lot of public land, a lot of energy development, debate over whether or not to have mining, and much more. And they believe that they stand out because other think tanks have fallen victim to the mentality of communicating only to the echo chamber, the only target individuals that agree with partisan messaging. Their approach enables them to reach new audiences by micro-targeting constituents on issues like finance, energy, education, or public safety. And specifically with Patrick, we spoke about nuclear energy, that's his favorite type of energy, water issues that plague the Colorado River Basin and water rights debate that surround that, mining, public lands use, and much more. ESG, I think, included as well. So I'm going to let Patrick take it away, get to know his organization. Everything you want to know about the group and Patrick can be found in the link to show notes in the podcast and check out what they have to offer and get connected with them. Thanks for listening. Patrick, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Good to have you on. Gabriella, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to catch up with you after San Diego. That It didn't really relate to natural resources, but we were talking, getting to know each other more. And you had mentioned your organization, which I want you to talk about, and some of the natural resources issues you hope to weigh in on. So describe your organization and what led you to start it. Sure, sure. Well, they, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I'm the president and founder of the Southwest Public Policy Institute. The concept of a, a multi-state regional think tank is relatively new. The only other organization I know of in the entire country that is focused on a specific region like we are is Chris Cargill's outfit. He launched the Mountain States Policy Center focused on the uh, the Pacific Northwest around the same time that we were launching the Southwest Public Policy Institute last summer. And it's focused on uh, this multi-state initiative so we can compare and contrast different policies from different states that all certainly have some common ground and similar problems, but then the states 
are approaching those problems in very different ways often. And some of those ways are great. Some of those ways result in uh, why New Mexico is 50th and why Arizona is not. That's great. And where do you guys find yourselves on natural resources? Because the Southwest has a lot of natural resources. It's largely encompassed by public land. Of course, everyone knows 99% of West of the Mississippi is where most of the public lands fall. Uh, Your home state, New Mexico, all those states you cover. So where is your organization weighing in on natural resources, energy development, what have you? Well, let's talk about the the energy development side of the conversation first. We are hugely supportive of uh, the extractive industries in terms of the oil and gas sector. But in, in addition to that, we're also hugely supportive of the the nuclear energy sector. One of the uh, the employees of Holtec International, the nuclear energy development company uh, that produces small modular reactors, and is also uh, was also attempting to um, build out the infrastructure for the interim storage facility. The uh, sorry, the consolidated interim storage facility facility in the southeast part of New Mexico where they would be storing spent nuclear fuel rods um, or spent nuclear fuel as it's referred to, which we, we've already gone over all of these, uh, the, the issues of it's it's safe, transportation is safe, storage is safe, these these fuel canisters do not leak, um, but but the left just is continuing to to vilify nuclear energy in in the aftermath still of uh, the, the 1980s Chernobyl disaster. Um, and, and we're trying to push back. We're trying to uh, get the American public to better embrace the uh, the greatness of, of nuclear energy, which is you know, zero carbon emission. It's clean. It's plentiful. It's cheap. It's reliable. It's safe. It's baseload. And, and that's part of the problem that I don't understand with the uh, with the, uh, the left, the um, the energy fanatic. Or I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the environmental the preservationists. Yeah. Yeah, the preservationists. yeah. Yeah. That's a good term to refer them by preservationists sure so that's part of the problem that i don't understand with the preservationists is they're all they're all about trying to preserve the environment but then they're advocating for the 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 build out of infrastructure that is actually more damaging to the environment than uh energy products like like nuclear fission the 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 energy density of nuclear power is so much higher than that of, of wind and solar. And, and the environmental footprint, um, the actual destruction of the environment with the build-out of solar farms and wind farms is, is infinitely more destructive than the build-out of nuclear energy technology. That and the DOE released a report last year, last fall, announcing that you can convert old aging coal-fired plants into nuclear plants because all of the infrastructure is there. I mean, the only difference between a coal plant and a nuclear plant is the heat generation source. So if you're not burning coal, but you're instead uh, fissioning atoms, it still creates heat. That heat is used to generate steam. That steam pressure is used to drive turbines, and those turbines produce electricity. If you just remove and replace the energy, the uh, the heat generation source from firing coal to fissioning atoms, just plug and play. And that's what the Department of Energy released, the, uh, the Office of Nuclear Energy. They released this um, incredible report announcing that conversion process and, and highlighting these, these, uh, the ability for, for uh, converting coal fire to nuclear fire. So, or not nuclear fire, excuse me, nuclear uh, fissioning. Um, and, and we'd like to see more of that adoption across the entire United States. We'd like to see push back against this uh, vilification 
of, of nuclear power that is not based in fact anymore, is not, was, was not ever based in fact. I'm glad you brought up nuclear because that seems to be the one true source of, let's, let's say, clean energy. Uh, because like you said, wind and solar have a lot of vast shortcomings. They require a lot of land. They expense a lot of energy. And the output is not as reliable and high-functioning as, as it's reported. And nuclear is the true, let's say, source that you could replace perhaps or, or at least supplement, but maybe one day if, if all the technology is there substitute you know oil and gas for but i i would i'm still comfortable that we can use oil gas etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think that could be the one supplement which could become the complement and then maybe replacement down the road because of like you said the the least exhaustive use of land it has a hundred percent reliable base load um it's a lot safer than reported and with Chernobyl, you mentioned um, that was because it's, it was a centrally planned government. And that is why that fiasco happened, because they didn't know how to do it. And I think they wanted to enact a lot of harm. They were really reckless. They had no regard for human life. So, of course, Chernobyl would would have been a disaster, uh, however the outcome was. But obviously, it was very disastrous. But um, it's interesting because, like you said, they put out the report, that report that you alluded to. And then they also just welcomed the... I would say the launching of the first nuclear reactor being opened in what several decades in Georgia. And you had both yes. Democrats, Republicans, preservationists, conservationists applaud that move. And you do see this shift in favor of nuclear, but you have obstacles in terms of environmental groups in particular who are using NEPA, who are using laws that would permit, let's say, uh, the exploration of these type of sources. If there was permitting reform, if red tape was cut, but they don't want that to happen. So they they are suing to keep NEPA kind of held hostage from allowing real exploration of clean energy, true clean energy like nuclear from happening. Right. Right. And what other issues outside of nuclear, because I know you're really passionate about nuclear, is the center focused on? I know water issues are very important from the Colorado River Basin also public lands, multiple use. What else are you guys trying to harness and focus on? Well, I, I think this one, uh, water is a really important issue. Um, to me personally, because of a, a family involvement in uh, certain water um, risk mitigation that goes back to the Aaron Brockovich era in the 90s when the town of Hinkley, California um, expressed concerns over uh, a chromium-6 plume that was the result of uh, these uh, groundwater ponds that were maintained by the California Pacific Gas and Electric Company. Um, these, these groundwater ponds were, were leaching chromium-6 into, into the groundwater, and it created a chromium-6 plume that eventually polluted aquifers that were used uh, by the residents of the town of Hinkley in, um, in their drinking water. And my dad, a PhD holder from uh, MIT in inorganic chemistry, um, David Brenner, Dr. David Brenner, not the comedian. Um, he actually worked on the Pacific Gas and Electric litigation uh, from the perspective of an environmental risk mitigation uh, with the Aaron Brockovich team. But he was of the opinion always that the chromium-6 groundwater plume was not actually causing any of the symptoms that were being experienced by the residents of the town of Hinkley. The issue was that he was hired by the Aaron Brockovich legal team to keep him quiet. But 
that's uh, that's my story. That's why I have a uh, an interest in um, in in exploring the the water management issues that are facing the American Southwest. I mean, it's it's one of the sunniest regions in the country, and we've got uh, we've got some water shortage problems. Um, uh, Hoover Dam, uh, Lake Mead, is is currently at one of its uh, its lowest levels in, right. in forever, all time record lows. Um, we we've got some serious issues with water management in the American Southwest, and uh, I mean in New Mexico, my home, well, my relative home, my current home state of New Mexico, uh, there was even those those issues where uh, those those mines were being mismanaged by the EPA, and uh, they released a whole bunch of contaminants into the Rio Grande. So we've we've got some serious problems facing the American Southwest just in terms of being able to deliver requisite water supply to residents, to agriculture, and it's hugely impactful. We've got uh, the, the Navajo Nation that's currently being uh, ruled against by the Supreme Court with water rights uh, surrounding the Colorado River. We, we've got a lot of problems, and we'd like to weigh in. We'd like to help. There are a lot of issues percolating, and water management is certainly one of them. This is more to central California, a little out of the southwestern portion of California, but they don't want to create any infrastructure or storage. I did a report, I think I told you this, about water management in California when they get a lot of rainfall that cancels out the drought with the snowpack. They often tend to release the water into the ocean, uh, not conserving the resources, not replenishing it, and, and that's largely to blame as well, I would say, for some of the woes. And then, you know, California gets much of the water. I think they get the largest percentage because they're the largest state with the largest population. And so the other states in that compact with the Colorado River lose out because California, I think, uh, gets the majority of that, of the water rights there. Um, and you could probably speak better to that than I can. But that's something I've always been interested in. I appreciate that preview. Have you been following the news of the new designation of the Arizona Monument right near the Grand Canyon? Are you guys going to be weighing in on that? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. But it's interesting. This kind of goes into the greater multiple use equation. Um, this news broke as I was traveling to Alaska. But I think your organization may weigh in on this. And I'm not trying to like reflexively oppose it because I'm very skeptical of Biden's interpretation of multiple use. I think he's steering away from that model, and I think that's problematic and wrong for them to do. And I was reading into this designation, and it's 1.1 million acres. So that concerns me a lot because of how big it is, straying away from Section 2 of the Antiquities Act, which says it has to be small, compatible areas. And Congress has to weigh in on this and determine, is 1.1 million acres small, compatible? Or should there be a restriction on how much the president can set aside for a monument? And there's already restrictions to mining in this immediate area. And um, I talked to hunter interests, and they say so far they're not concerned about it restricting hunting and fishing access. But you never know. With this administration, they could eventually decide to renege on that pledge. But um, the area of contention is with Arizona ranchers and farmers and even Utah ranchers and farmers who have grazing rights in this particular area. So for me, that kind of sticks out as concerning and also the the large swath of land that they're setting aside for a monument and also the existing restrictions to mining that exist there at least until 2032. So that's something you should weigh in on. Um, and I'm going to explore it more here on the podcast. But 
Are you guys also concerned? I think we talked more and got to know each other more, obviously through our connection with our mutual friend, Francis. But uh, you had reached out to me and said uh, kudos for my Wall Street Journal op-ed. But are you guys following the BLM directive to change what multiple uses and maybe challenge that there? No, we we haven't been. And that's only because of uh, we just don't have any body of work to to show and advocate on behalf of when it comes to the BLM and, and the redefinition of uh, multiple use. That's still an issue I think you guys can weigh in on um, for sure. But are there any other like energy projects outside of nuclear that are kind of on the organization's radar? Um, any other sticking points like maybe Waters of the United States or Endangered Species Act? Um, anything else that you guys are going to possibly weigh in on? Sure. Well, within the energy sector, um, gosh, I, we're just, I, I've got tunnel vision. We've got tunnel vision. We're focused so heavily on nuclear power right now. Um, we, we'd like to see uh, additional friendliness showed by the the administration of the state of New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's administration toward uh, oil and natural gas industries. Um, just because the oil and natural gas sector makes up such a huge, the revenues generated by um, the, the royalties for producing the oil and gas make up such a huge percentage of the state budget. And we're one of the top producers, if not, are we, are we not the top, is New Mexico the top producer in the country right now for oil and gas? It was, it was right is. there in like the top five. You guys are definitely um, in the top five. I think it's Texas and then maybe you guys, I have to recall, but it, it's Texas usually is the king here um, in yeah. terms of their production. But I think you guys are in the top five. And th- and that's all coming out of the Permian Basin, which is the southeast part of the state which of New Mexico. Which you share, yes, yep. with Texas. Yep, yep. Uh, Texas, uh, Texas, and uh, that's like Midland, uh, West West Texas. Um, so we we like to see it, you've got two different states that are reacting and um, being friendly to or not being friendly to the oil and gas sector. You've got New Mexico that just wants to kill the industry, or at least an administration that is portraying itself as wanting to kill the industry uh, in order to cozy up to um, those those. In, uh, far left uh, extremist interests. And then you've got Texas that is so incredibly friendly to the oil and gas sector and the oil and gas industry. Um, and they just, uh, they, they embrace it. They embrace it. They love it. They, it generates um, a ton of revenue for the entire state of Texas. And uh, you've got, you've got this huge difference in in the approach of these two different states. And that's something that we absolutely would, would love to highlight. Here's New Mexico trying to kill it, cut off its nose to spite its face. And you've got Texas that's embracing its number one revenue generator. How has the effects Why? of the Biden administration policies coupled with the governor's positions affected New Mexico? Because like you said, I think it provides and supplies 40% of jobs in the state. 40% of the, the, the revenue of, of the entire state. I think the number one um, the, the number one sector of, of job providing in, in the state of New Mexico is um, it's all public sector. I mean, the government is the number one employer in the, in the state of New Mexico. Uh, and that's, that's coming from a combination of uh, the, the national labs here, San Diego national lab, Los Alamos national lab. Um, and I went to Los Alamos high school uh, class of 2010 Um we missed our uh, we missed our ten year reunion. Thank you, COVID. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
uh, those uh, those two labs and uh, the University of New Mexico, and then the state of New Mexico. Those are all the top employers in the in in New Mexico, and it's really. Um, it's really a, a, sh- a shame when, when you consider the natural resources that are available in New Mexico, um, copper or other extractive industries. Um, I mean, New Mexico used to be a huge copper producer, um, and, and that's certainly not the case anymore. And, and you've got problems in Arizona with copper extraction. And if the left is going to continue to advocate for electric vehicle adoption – exporting the California model of mandating EV ownership and EV uh, electric vehicle sales um, in the double-digit percentages uh, over the next uh, several years. Um, you've got to, to support electric vehicle production in terms of being able to provide those, uh, those minerals for the production of those electric vehicles, which includes the battery, the electronics, and so much of that is requisite on on copper but you've got these these states that are advocating for evs but then you've got these the same states that are advocating for uh no mining it, it's entirely it's, it's, it's so it, it is it's hypocritical i mean if we if we were to give them the benefit of the doubt if let's say we want the viability of evs but there are many shortcomings and they're sitting in car lot, lots not being purchased even with the nice incentives and perks being offered um, if, if you were to call it American made or want it to be American made, you would look here at home, you'd look in the Southwest, you'd look in Alaska to safely procure and refine rare earth minerals or these critical mining sources. But they don't want to do that. They want to go to the Congo. They want to go to these countries to get it for cheap and ignore the vast human rights issues, the slave labor conditions, and, and partner with countries that have no environmental standards, very little environmental standards. So it is a huge paradox even though it is plentiful and can be safely procured and refined here, um, even with kind of, like you said, the vast shortcomings with these so-called alternatives that they're looking for, but they don't want to do it here. They don't want to do it safely. Um, and it's it's very questionable as to how they operate and, and they want nothing done here, but they're okay with looking. It's, it's like the paradox of ESG. They are fine with, you know, not doing anything here and they're preaching here, yet they are partnering with countries that have no regard for the environment and and they're fine with dealing with them and, and ignoring ESG standards here and then having no ESG standards when they're bartering, you know, with China and the Congo and other countries where there are vast problems. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. The environmental standards of the United States are the gold standard for the for the entire world. We are so careful with the extraction. We are so careful with the way we um, return the the mining facilities back to their, uh, their, their natural environments, um, in the aftermath of, uh, of the mines. I mean, when the, when the mines have, uh, served their purpose and it's time to return them back to their natural state, uh, I mean, many of these companies, uh, will, will do that. I mean, it, th- these are requirements and you won't see that out of these, uh, these other countries. So why is the left out there advocating for the extraction of, rare earth minerals and uh, requisite minerals for, for the um, adoption, the widespread adoption, the mandated adoption of uh, electric vehicles. And in the same breath is telling that the American public that we can't source the, the components for those vehicles from within our own country. When we are the ones that are going to produce it, the safest, the cleanest, 
uh, it, the cleanest methods poss- possible. I, I, <laughs> it is a paradox. But it's not surprising because China has the majority stake of the rare earth minerals. They control it uh, through other countries and they dominate here. And there's no way the U.S. will be able to compete with them as it currently stands because they uh, sur- not surrendered, but they rather sh- uh, deferred it to them and, and, and gave them the ability to do this. Shrugged the responsibility, didn't really care. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's OK for other countries to leave here. All the while, they're engaging in so many questionable environmental practices, again, not adhering to ESG and the like. And I think the U.S. brought this problem upon themselves. It did. It has put us in a position where we are so heavily reliant on the interests of a foreign power that often does not share our uh, best interests. It does not. It does not share Western values. China is not um, is not a friend to the United States. Mm-mm. But you've got the left that's advocating for additional reliance on on China, and I, I don't under. It, it is it is such a paradox, Gabriella, that I I don't understand how you could how they could make that case. But they do because I think we have people in charge, the preservationists especially, who want to not be number one anymore. And because we're, we're, we were dominating for too long, it's China's turn or it's another country's turn. And, and they have to dominate now for some odd reason because we were controlling and, and dominating for many, many decades. And we have to, even though we're the environmental leader of the whole world, uh, we have to take a step back and we have to be second place, third place to these countries for whatever grievances they think we have um, for dominating or whatever. Uh, but it, it's going to be a tenuous position for them to tell that this is American made, tell that we're really environmentally friendly when we're sh- shrugging that responsibility or shirking that responsibility rather and allowing countries with vast, horrible environmental footprints, numerous human rights violations and just poor standards in comparison to us to dominate and lead here. It makes no sense. It. I agree. I don't get it. But that's what it is. That's the preservationist paradox. I think that's what we're going to call it there. So, Patrick, if people want to follow the organization and support your other work, even besides natural resources, the Southwest Public Policy Institute, where would you like to defer them? Tell us how you can support and get involved, because I bet you I have a lot of Southwest listeners. I think they're looking for groups to get involved in and support. I want you to dispense the details and, and share how they can get involved and support you. Absolutely. Um the, the Southwest Public Policy Institute, uh, we have a website, southwestpolicy.com. On that website, you can find uh, all of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, we're everywhere. Um, we have a podcast that we release every Friday as well. Uh, we call it SPPI TV. It's available on Spotify. Uh, we also live stream it uh, with video to, to YouTube and everything else. So um, if you're if you're interested in listening to issues that are presently facing the American Southwest, uh, SPPI TV is the place to be. Um, and it's also available everywhere podcasts are available. Um, I think Stitcher is going away, but uh, we'll, we'll be on uh, Pandora and, and everything else. Um, Excellent. The, the core tenets of, of the Institute, uh, I think, are really important um, and, and really emphasize uh, natural resources as a, as a prime focus for the work of the Institute. Uh, we've distilled all of our work into four major categories, education reform, energy, and the environment, 
so that's uh, one. Uh, education is number one. Energy and the environment, that's number two. Uh, economic opportunity is number three. And then, um, well, I mean, my, my personal favorite, because it's how I get to be the most aggressive, uh, government accountability and transparency. And uh, we're wrapping up some litigation with a couple of different public bodies uh, this week, and we're bringing new litigation uh, on a pretty regular basis, uh, which is which is to say a lot for such a young organization. And I'm really proud of our our staunch litigation strategy and our our, our approach to uh, to transparency and government accountability. We're like the government watchdog of the American Southwest. Um, that's that's certainly leveraging transparency. Uh, to our advantage. So find out more about the Institute at southwestpolicy.com. A much needed outfit and any way I can help with natural resources or draw attention to topics in your region, we will collaborate. We've already established that, but I encourage everyone to connect with Patrick and his organization. This won't be the first you hear from him and we'll have him on hopefully to talk about more issues as it relates to Southwest public lands, multiple use, nuclear, because Nuclear is something a lot of people are going to be talking about. So I would love to learn more about nuclear from you, Patrick, and any details you can send over, of course. And we'll love to have you back on. Gabriella, thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.